Well, we're in this series of messages, hopefully by now you know, called uh, Living by Faith. And uh, you'll find it helpful if you pull out your message outline as uh, we're looking at the life of and the faith of Moses. And um, hopefully you've been seeing quite a lot of what we've been learning over the last few weeks about Moses' faith, how God called him, how Moses has been trusting him, how God has developed him, and how God has kind of led him through. And really, Moses is, is described in the Old Testament, well, in fact, through the whole of Scripture, particularly in Hebrews uh, 11, as a man of great faith, probably seen as one of the greatest men of faith, one of the patriarchs, as it were, throughout the Old Testament. And there are many things that crop up in Moses' life that help us understand a bit more about faith and how we might live by faith. Now this morning, I want us to talk, I want to talk about really something that perhaps uh, we struggle with, something that we perhaps uh, deal with on a daily basis maybe, or maybe our character is kind of along, along those sort of lines. And that is this tension between trusting God or in fact testing God. The fact is this. God will use tests in your life to grow your character and to strengthen your faith. It is one of the fundamental laws of spiritual growth. Because here's the really key thing for you to understand. That God, God's number one goal in your life is to make you like Jesus Christ. To grow you up to spiritual maturity. That is his number one purpose in your life, to make you like Christ. And life, on, and life really is the growing stage, the development stage before we go to heaven. Now on earth, everything here on earth doesn't work perfectly. It doesn't go the way you want it to go. I don't have to tell you that. So therefore, we will find things will come in our direction. But the fact is, is that God is more interested in your character than he is your comfort. So you shouldn't expect everything to go absolutely right all the time in this life because it's not going to. God wants to grow your character. He wants to make you spiritually mature. He wants you to live by faith daily. He, he doesn't want you to be this spiritual baby all of your life. In other words, he wants you to grow up. Now, one of the ways that God does that is by testing you. So, for example, when you work out in a gym, you test your muscles by lifting weights. The more weight you lift, the more it tests your muscles, the more it grows your muscles. God builds your character the same way through a series of tests which test your faith. They test your character. They certainly test your patience. There are all kinds of different tests in life that will test us and challenge us. Now, the good news is this. The good news is that there is a purpose behind every single problem in our lives. We have to understand that problems are not simply random or by chance. The problems that come into your life are a test of your character, they grow your character, they grow your faith if you let them, if you allow them to. They help you become all that God wants you to be, which, remember, is to become like his son, Jesus Christ. Now, we know that every problem has a purpose and is designed to help you grow from what the Bible says. So, for example, James 1, verses 2 to 4 says this, Whenever trouble comes your way, let it be an opportunity for joy. Now you might think, whoa, hang on a minute, James. Are you living on the same planet that I'm living on? I'm so happy I've got another problem. Really, James? Now, if he just stopped there, that wouldn't make any sense. But he gives you a reason for the joy, because he goes on and says, For when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow. When it is fully developed, you will be strong in character and ready for anything. 
That's what I want for you. I want you to be strong in character. I want you to be ready for anything that happens in life. You are resilient because you have the strength of character. You are ready for anything because your faith has been tested. Now notice those two phrases. In fact, I've underlined them there on your outline. The phrase, faith is tested, and the phrase, strong in character. You might want to draw a line between them because they go together. The way you become strong in character, whether we like it or not, is to have your faith tested. And so God will use the conflicts and the problems and the pressures and the trials and the difficulties and the disasters and the dead ends and the disappointments in life to test your faith. He uses all of these things to test your faith and to grow you strong in your character. And if you want to be the person God wants you to be, God will test your faith. Now, fortunately, God wants you to pass the test. So he gives you the answers in advance, and all the answers are found right here in the Bible. The Bible, for many reasons and for many things, but the Bible is the answer book for all the tests of this life. And God gives us so many different examples throughout the pages of Scripture to prepare us for the many different kinds of tests that we will face in life. Every test you will go through in life is already in the Bible. And if you study the Bible, what you will discover is that you will see that there are characters in this book, there are situations that arise, there are principles. There is so much in here that helps you pass each test. Now this morning, we're going to look at a test that Moses and the Israelites had. And they didn't do too well, but we can still learn from them. And first of all, I want us to see the dangers of testing God, because that is dangerous. When we try to test God, that can cause issues. And then I want us to look at, well, what do we learn? How do we trust God? What do we learn from the tests in life? But let's begin by looking at the dangers of testing God. And the first danger is this, the danger of complacency. Now, when I was at uh, Bible Seminary, one of the subjects I actually really enjoyed was church history. Now, you might think history is dull as ditch water, but basically, I quite like history. I even did history at school. I even got an O-level history. I know, I haven't got many. I've got O-level art and O-level history. That's about as far as it goes for me. But I really enjoyed history. And history is important because there are two things you can do with history. You can ignore it or you can learn from it. Now, I read a rather cynical comment about history a while ago. I can't remember who said it, but, but it makes a good point. The, the comment was this. There is one thing we have learned from history, and it is that we have not learned anything from history. It's unfortunate, isn't it? But probably there's a lot of truth in that, isn't there? It's very often right, isn't it, that principle? Think about the lessons you personally learned maybe 10 or 15 years ago. Isn't it remarkable how you still are trying to master the same subject material you thought that you'd nailed down long ago? And we human beings, we are like that, aren't we? We struggle to learn on a permanent basis life-changing lessons from the mistakes of our forefathers. Instead, we tend to repeat them. And we're not alone. This was true for the ancient Hebrews. That's why the Apostle Paul wrote to a group of first century believers in a church in Corinth. And he writes this in 1 Corinthians 10. In verse 1 he says, 
For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our forefathers were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. Now he emphasises that all of the Israelites who left Egypt with Moses had seen God's hand on them in amazing ways. They had seen God rescue them. They had seen God do the miraculous, some incredible things. God had led this group of people, this nation, with a cloud by day and a pillar of fire at night, and he had wondrously delivered them from slavery in Egypt through the Red Sea. We looked at that a couple of weeks back. All of them lived to see that mighty miracle with their eyes. But in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 5, Paul tells us, nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Now don't miss that. All of them saw the cloud, all of them went through the sea, all of them experienced the mighty hand of God rescuing them and saving them and upholding them. They'd gone through the, the deliverance, the Red Sea deliverance, they'd seen all these amazing things, but God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered over the deserts. In other words, not many of them got to the promised land. Now here's Paul's point, verse 6. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. And then in verse 10 he adds, And do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. And then he wraps up his instructions by repeating his warning in verse 11. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfilment of the ages has come. In other words, Paul is saying that not only were the Israelites making history, not only were they proving God, not only was God leading them and guiding them and the glory of God at work, not only were they making that kind of history, they were making it for our benefit. They took a few tests and they failed. And God recorded their mistakes that we might, not, we might learn not to do as they did. God did not give Israel a wilderness experience simply to live and die by. He permanently carved their experience into living truth called the Bible so that we might learn from history and not ignore it. Now perhaps you're saying to yourself, well, I don't experience too many wilderness problems anymore. In fact, actually, I've come to the place in my life where I'm pretty much sorted. I think I'm doing all right. Things are great. I'm fine. If you feel like that, then Paul has a word for you because verse 12 is written for you. So if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. Pay attention. Even you can learn from history because our Heavenly Father often repeats his messages by taking us through wilderness experiences, through these different kinds of challenges and tests so that we might keep on trusting him. The second danger is the danger of complaining. Not just complacency, but the danger of complaining. Now, if you know anything about Israel, one of the things you can't help but notice is how much they moaned. Man, they moaned, did they not? I mean, when they were tested by God, they didn't see it as a refining process. Instead, they moaned and they grumbled and they complained. I found this, um, this, old, um, this old Hasidic fable about a woman whose name was called Anna Kabich. She was a complainer. This is how the fable goes. 
All day she complained. She said, I have so little money, my clothes are like old rags, my health is so bad, my back feels like the walls of Jericho, I must walk so far to draw water, my feet are like watermelons, my house is so small I can barely move in it, my children visit me so little that they hardly know me. Well, one day, as this fable goes, Annika Bitch woke up with a itch on her nose. All day long her nose itched. She went into town to visit the rabbi, and when the rabbi saw Anna, he asked her, how are you, Anna? Anna replied, I have so little money, my clothes are like old rags. My health is so bad, my back feels like the walls of Jericho. I must walk so far to draw water, my feet are like watermelons. My house is so small I can barely move in it. My children visit me so little that they hardly know me. And now I have this itch on my nose and it plagues me so. Tell me, Rabbi, what does it mean? Well, the Rabbi said, Anna, your itch is the kibitch itch. The complainer's itch. Its meaning is this. How you consider yourself, so shall you be. Well, the next morning, Anna woke up and her nose was still itching, she couldn't, but she couldn't barely move. Her back had turned into stone like the walls of Jericho. When she looked about her, she noticed that her house had shrunk until her arms stuck out the windows and her legs hung out the front door. She could not move in it at all. On the end of her legs were two huge watermelons. Her clothes had turned to old rags, and when her son and her daughter came walking by, Anna called out to them, but they continued walking on, wagging their heads. They didn't know her. And her nose continued to itch. In despair, Anna remembered the meaning of the kibitch, itch. However you consider yourself, so shall you be. Anna began to think, you know, I do have money enough to live on and more. Henceforth, I will give out of my abundance to those who are not so well off. My health is not so bad. Actually, for someone my age, I feel quite well. I'm glad I have such a nice house to live in. It's not large, but it's comfortable and quite warm. I really don't mind my walk to draw water. I love to smell the flowers along the path. And my children, I'm so proud that they've become independent and are now able to take care of themselves. Miraculously, while Anna was saying these things, her situation returned to normal and her outlook and life changed forever. When the rabbis tell Anna's story, they end with this statement, may your noses itch forever. <laughs> now, we may not have the kibitch itch, but we need to be reminded that our outlook affects our outcomes. In other words, our attitude in life makes a big difference, doesn't it? Do you complain all the time? Do you always resent it when other people have more than you or seem to be doing better than you? Do you grumble about your life? Or do you praise God for all that he has given to you, the way in which he has blessed you? See, as we've seen over these last five weeks or so in this series, the Israelites really were a bunch of moaners. I mean, at times in their history, they really were a group of whingers, and Exodus 17 gives us an example of this. In fact, chapters 15 and 16 have been, among other things, all about Israel moaning. But chapter 17, I think, is the ultimate whinge. In fact, let me show you what I mean. Let me show you how it builds up. Back in Exodus 15, verses 22-24, we read it last week, it says this. 
Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea and they went into the desert of Shur. For three days they travelled in the desert without finding water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink its water because it was bitter. That is why the place is called Marah. So the people, look at this, the people grumbled against Moses saying, what are we to drink? There you go, that's moan number one. Moan number two comes in Exodus 16, verses 1 through 3. The whole Israelite community set out from Elim and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they'd come out of Egypt. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat round pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into the desert to starve this entire assembly to death. There's your second moment. Now the third moan comes in Exodus 17, verses 1 and 2. The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of Sin, travelling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped in Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarrelled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. Do you see how it builds over time? In fact, what the Israelites were doing is looking back all the time, but not looking forward. And when they look back at their time in Egypt, they thought they were, they were way better off. They're thinking back to those days when they thought there was plenty and they enjoyed afternoon siestas and fresh fish sandwiches made with Jewish bagels back in the good old days, back in good old Egypt. Now, of course, that was all fantasy and it wasn't like that at all, was it? They were slaves. I guess we can see how ridiculous the Israelites were to think like that. And yet, don't we do that too? Does that sound like your life? If so, it's time to learn the timeless lesson. If you focus on your past, it won't be long before complaints start oozing from your lips. You will remember a long ago time bathed in a hazy, rosy glow of memory when something was easier and more comfortable than it is today. And as you compare then with now, I guarantee it, you will grumble. We all do this. But it really is stupid. We look back nostalgically on what was once a pleasant situation at which time we were looking back longingly on a more pleasant earlier time. That's just so stupid, isn't it, if you think about the logic? You may be, may be grumbling right now about your current situation, but chances are good that in two years from now you'll be looking back on this moment and saying, oh, for the good old days. Do you remember it back then? Boy, it was great back then, wasn't it? We somehow forget that in March of this year we grumbled because we were focusing on February of last year, at which time we grumbled because we were focusing on January of the year before, but that wasn't as good as April of the year before that. Still with me? But we kind of do that, don't we? We live in the light of some dreamy past leisure or pleasure, when in reality God continues to show himself strong all along the way. And the danger is we feel that because we have endured the current test, we shouldn't have to experience it again. And so we grumble and we moan and we complain. Here's a poem I found called Grumblers. In country, town or city, some people can be found who spend their lives in grumbling at everything around. Oh yes, they always grumble, no matter what we say. 
For these are chronic grumblers and they grumble night and day. They grumble in the city, they grumble on the farm, they grumble at their neighbours, they think it is no harm. They grumble at their husbands, they grumble at their wives, they grumble at their children, but the grumbler never thrives. They grumble when it's raining, they grumble when it's dry, and if the crops are failing, they grumble and they sigh. They grumble at the prices and grumble when they are high, they grumble all the year around, and they grumble until they die. Pretty convicting, isn't it? Some of us make grumbling a habit, even though it may, we may cover it up on a Sunday. Pretty good at wearing masks on a Sunday, aren't we? But we perhaps grumble quite a lot during the week. Whether we're moving slowly along in traffic, or we've been served a late meal, or we're planning a last-minute arrangement with someone, uh, and it doesn't work out, or, or working with a difficult group, we are often given to complaining and grumbling. It's like we have this gift of grumbling and we think we should exercise it on a regular basis. The problem is, is that ne- that gift, by the way, doesn't exist in the Bible. There is no gift of grumbling. Neither is there a gift of criticism either, incidentally. The Bible never affirms our griping and sniping and moaning over our daily situations. And there is a danger that when we do that, we're testing God, we're doubting God. But there's a third danger, and the third danger is the danger of conceitedness. As I said earlier on, God's number one purpose is to make you like Jesus Christ. And so we go through situations, through experiences, through tests, trials, which is one of the ways in which God moulds us and changes us. And yes, at times it hurts to endure life's trials. And it hurts even more to repeat those tests. Yet without those tests and trials, we have very little capacity to receive godly counsel or make progress forward progress towards maturity. We become, if we don't have these kind of challenges, if we don't have these tests that come into our lives, the danger is we become overconfident in our own abilities, in our own gifts, in our own strengths. In other words, we become conceited. It's over the long haul that God is honing us and moulding us and changing us through these various tests that he allows in our lives. He stretches us. At times, he will break us. He will crush us. He will reduce us. But he does that so that we will be reduced to absolute trust in him. He's not like a, a puppet master kind of dictating and pulling the strings and playing games with us. Far from it. Because remember, his number one purpose is to make you like Jesus Christ. So he will allow these tests and trials and they will stretch and break and crush us perhaps but always reducing us so that we may be in absolute trust of God. And yet when we grumble and we moan, we are no longer trusting God. Instead, we are testing God. This is what the Israelites did back in Exodus 17. Look again at verse 1. The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of Sin, travelling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Now before, there was no relief from the heat. Next, there was no food, back in Exodus 16. Now there's no water. And how do the people respond? Do they complain as before? Yeah, they do. You'd think they'd have learned their lesson. God had provided for them many times before. And only in a short space of time. We're only a couple of months in since the Red Sea deliverance. But they grumble. 
But this time, it's a lot worse. Verse 2 tells us, so they quarrelled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. Their dissatisfaction has escalated. The word quarrel is a stronger word in the original language of Hebrew than the word grumble. It is a very strong word. Before they said, who will give us food? And they grumbled. Now they threaten and they angrily command Moses, give us water to drink. Moses replied, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the law to the test? Why do you quarrel with me, Moses asked them. I mean, who did they think he was anyway? How could he provide them with water? And why did God's people do that? Why did God's people complain like that? Pastor, this ministry is not going the way we thought. Why isn't the church doing this? It's, your, it's all your fault, pastor. Many a pastor has been sacrificed for the sake of the Christian ministries, even though God has wanted to teach the church something, perhaps through that ministry's wilderness experience. You see, if the Israelites had a quarrel with someone, it was with the Lord. Moses had already told the people that back in Exodus 16, verses 6 and 8. So Moses and Aaron said to all the Israelites, in the evening you will know that it is the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. And in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we that you should grumble against us? Moses also said, you will know that it was the Lord when he gives you meat to eat in the evening and all the bread you want in the morning because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we? You are not grumbling against us but against the Lord. So he's already told them this. But once again, he tells them again here in Exodus 17, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord God to the test? Why do you test the Lord, he says. He realises how short-sighted they are, and so he attempts to, to turn their eyes towards God. And by the way, that's the job of every spiritual leader, to consistently and repeatedly turn his people's eyes to the Lord. And Moses does this time and time again. He does this beautifully throughout the whole of Exodus. He wants the Israelites to look to God, not to him, and certainly not to look at their circumstances. He wants them to look to God, to trust God. That's why he warns them repeatedly about testing the Lord. But they refuse to listen. Verse 3 But the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. They said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? Now, Moses knows a threatening scene when he sees one, and therefore he cries out to the Lord, verse 4. Then Moses cried out to the Lord, what am I to do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. Now these are not exaggerated words of a frightened leader. This is literal truth. The people have grown so angry, they were ready to kill Moses, their leader. How dare these people put God to the test? And how dare we? Moses had taught Israel to sing, back in Exodus 15, verse 11, these words, Who among the gods is like you, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? 
God is holy in absolute uniqueness. Everything else belongs to a class. We are humans. Rover is a dog. The oak is a tree. Earth is a planet. The Milky Way is one of a billion galaxies. But only God is God. And therefore he is holy. He is utterly different. He is distinct. He is unique. All else is creation. He alone creates. All else begins, he alone always was. And so how dare we put God to the test? Instead we should say, just like the four living creatures in heaven who day and night say this about the Lord God in Revelation 4, 11, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. You see, God could have, God could have wiped Israel off the face of the planet because of what they had said. He could have done that in a moment. And yet, despite all their complaints, God graciously answers with abundance. What grace! Verse 5, the Lord answered Moses, walk on ahead of the people, take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. I will stand there before you by the rock of Horeb, strike the rock and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel and he called the place Massa and Mirabah because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? And you know, when you boil grumbling down to what it is, you realise that it is actually asking God, are you here or not? Are you with me or not? It's actually a case of open, unrestrained, verbal doubt. And because Moses wanted the people to remember their error, he named the place Mirabah, meaning quarrel, to remind them with whom they had quarrelled with, with whom they had argued, with whom they had tested. They hadn't really grumbled and argued with Moses. They hadn't tested Moses. They had argued and complained and grumbled and tested God. He wants them to remember that that they might learn from their error. So what can we learn? What lessons can we learn from this? Here are three for you to consider. First of all, it takes a problem to inspect us. Do you know, God often allows, God often, God often uses problems to inspect us. He uses problems to check us out, to kind of look at our hearts, to, to do a little bit of an examination. God uses problems as a test. Deuteronomy 8 verse 2 sums up Israel's time in the desert. The Lord God led you all the way in the desert these 40 years to test you in order to know what was in your heart. God let the children of Israel wander around the desert for 40 years and he gave them seven different tests in fact and every single test they failed. And problems reveal what's inside of us. It's like, it's like when you squeeze a, uh, a toothpaste tube 
toothpaste comes out, doesn't it? When you squeeze a lemon, lemon juice comes out. When you are in the squeeze, whatever is inside of you will come out. Somebody said, Christians are like tea bags. You don't know what's inside of them until you plop them in hot water. It's true, isn't it? When you get under pressure, it really does reveal what you are. What's inside of you. God uses problems to inspect us, to test us. Problems, you see, in the Bible are often compared to the refining process of precious metals, gold or silver. We're in the, the refiner's fire. And the way you purify metal is you turn up the heat and it burns off all of the dross. It burns off all of the impurities. It purifies it. And problems can purify our lives. They can burn off the things that don't count. The things that we once thought were important, problems come and we suddenly realise they aren't that important really, those things anymore. Somebody asked a silversmith one time, how do you know when the silver is pure? And he said, when I can see my reflection in it. When God can see his reflection in you, he knows you have been refined. Like steel, people are stronger when they are tested. Secondly, he takes a humble attitude to learn from earthly tests. God not only wants you to endure tests, he wants us to learn from them. But we don't learn without humility. The proud don't learn. Proverbs 28, 26 says this, He who trusts in himself is a fool, but he who walks in wisdom is kept safe. The fool isn't humble. The fool remains proud. And some of you perhaps here today or watching online, you can hear and you can read about these events or some of these, these important principles to live by, modelled by Moses that we've been looking at over the last six weeks. And you can leave here and you can resume your life of grumbling as though you never heard God speak to you. Biblical truth always works, but it must be applied. Don't just be hearers of the word be doers also. It must be applied regardless of your circumstances. And humility will always, always accelerate the learning process. And thirdly, it takes a heavy test to break a daily habit. The reality is daily habits are not easily broken, are they? And nothing is set in concrete more deeply than Egyptian habits. The Israelites had this fantasy life, didn't they? This life in Egypt, they thought it was better, which of course it wasn't. They were slaves, remember? And so God had to break them time and time again. Hebrews 12, verses 10 and 11 tells us that. God disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Have you said something like this? Maybe you said this lately. Why don't we get through this situation? Do you know why you don't? Because you refuse to learn from the same experience. Somehow we just don't let it penetrate our hearts. But God never wastes his time or his tests on his people. He knows how long to plan the test, how often to repeat it, and how difficult the examination must be. May we never forget the lessons of history. 
whether they be our own personal history or the history of ancient Israel. Remember what I said earlier on, you can either ignore history or you can learn from it. God's number one purpose in your life is to make you like Jesus Christ. And at times in your life, he will take you through experiences and tests as one of the ways to achieve that purpose. And you might need to remember that this week. Think of it like this. You will never, you, will, you have never lived the next seven days in front of you. And you will never, ever live them again. Life is like a coin. Spend it any way you want to, but you can only spend it once. And God wants you to learn from your experiences, from the tests that he brings into your life. Are you facing a test at the moment? Are you facing an impossible task and you're asking, what Lord? Or are you facing a delayed promise, a delayed answer, when Lord? Are you facing an unsolved problem, how Lord, how, Lord, are you going to do this? Are you facing a loss and you're grieving? Why, Lord? Are you struggling with prolonged pain? How long, Lord? You know, there's nothing wrong with asking God those questions. As long as you are trusting God while you wait for an answer. You're going to go through many tests in life, so the question is, will you test God or will you trust God? Will you live by faith? Faith is facing the future without knowing what. Faith is following God's leading without knowing where. Faith is waiting on God's timing without knowing when. Faith is expecting a miracle without knowing how. Faith is trusting God's purpose without knowing why. Faith is continuing to persist without knowing how long. Will you trust God? That's the question. With God's tests, the key is not knowing all the answers. With God's tests, the key is trusting God to know the answer. Let's pray. And Heavenly Father, help us to trust you and to be a person of faith. Help us to be people of character that you can use in mighty ways. Help us to face the future in faith without knowing what. Help us follow your leading without knowing where. Help us wait for your timing without knowing when. Help us to expect a miracle without knowing how. Help us to trust your plan and purpose without knowing why. And help us to continue to persist and endure without knowing how long. Lord our God, please give us your strength that we may trust you. In your name we pray. Amen.